Jamie Turner. You can find me on Twitter at TurnerASQ, writing at Sounder at Heart about the Sounders. I also write for The Athletic as a contributor, where I write about more national issues. I also write for my own website, Soccer ESQ, where I write about the business and law of soccer. The Women's World Cup is upon us, and on this episode, I'm happy to be joined by Meg Linehan, a colleague at The Athletic. We touch on a bit of her background at the NWSL before she moved to The Athletic full-time. She'll be in France covering the Women's World Cup, mainly focused on the U.S. Women's National Team, but writing other interesting stories on the tournament as well. We talk about the monster primer for the Women's World Cup in The Athletic, and we'll preview the tournament. We'll also talk about some off-the-field issues, including equal pay, the Women's National Team lawsuit, and the Hope Solo Crusade against the U.S. Soccer Federation. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, joining me now is the Athletics' Meg Linehan, who is heading over to France, uh, well, in about uh, 12, 24 hours, and I want to thank her for giving me a few uh, minutes to talk with me about the Women's World Cup and all other assorted issues. Uh, Meg, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm super glad that I could fit it in before the, the flight from JFK. Yeah, yeah, we were just talking about that uh, before we started recording. You've got a long day ahead of you tomorrow. Uh, so uh, what's your what's your schedule like, and what is the first game you're going to check out? Yeah, so my, my flight's at 7 o'clock at night, flying overnight, get in to Paris uh, early in the morning, and then basically immediately launching into the World Cup. I'm heading to the opening game on Friday night between France and South Korea. And then the next morning, I'm taking a train up to where the U.S. national team is playing, and I'll actually be heading, there's a earlier match uh, between Norway and Nigeria that I'm going to go to, and then really it turns into U.S. soccer, um, primarily in terms of the teams that I'm covering through the group stage. Awesome. So, yeah, this is kind of a, a big or a, a, way, a big way to introduce yourselves uh, to the athletic as your job, because... Uh, splashing in and doing the World Cup and also congratulations on the, uh, uh, on the, uh, on joining the athletic. Uh, so just, uh, tell, tell everyone a little bit about, uh, where you came from before you, uh, joined with the athletic full time. Sure. So right before the athletic, I was actually working for the women's professional league here in America, the National Women's Soccer League. Um, I had started as a content person and then, uh, was promoted to social media manager and then was promoted to senior content manager. So I was overseeing basically the site, the app, social media, our videos, uh, the stories on the site, you name it. And, um, yeah, and then the athletic came and they were like, hey, um, would you like to go to World Cup? And I was like, that sounds interesting. So <laughs> yeah. it, it has been a really fun jump over. Um, I was a journalist before joining NWSL, so... It's not completely unfamiliar ground, but it's been really fun to actually, you know, get to write again long form and, and tell some stories that I wasn't previously able to tell. And, um, yeah, it's been a couple months and then a World Cup. So it's definitely, you know, jumping right into the world of women's soccer from day one. I mean, first week I had four stories up. So it has not been a quiet time to, uh, to join the athletic now. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, we'll definitely want to circle around to the NWSL, uh, towards the end, but, uh, want to talk obviously first about the, uh, the World Cup. Uh, and you wrote a, a monster piece for the athletic, uh, yeah. and I, if you have any questions about, uh, the Women's World Cup, uh, you should check out Meg's piece on the athletic. Uh, and so I just want to chat with you a little bit about that piece. Uh, you know, obviously 
the two of us and a lot of our read, uh, listeners probably uh, are well versed in it. But I wanted to just chat with you a little bit about some of your uh, your big takeaways from from your piece, um, and you know, to give everyone a kind of a primer on on what to expect. Uh, what are some of the the big takeaways you see as uh, as we start uh, the Women's World Cup? Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway right at the moment is the fact that you know every other tournament, there's really only been maybe a couple of teams that are really going to make a really strong run. For winning the title and this year I think it's the most competitive there are really five to eight teams that I think are more than capable of winning a World Cup some of them might need some extra lucky bounces but you know it's really not just the U.S. national team Germany maybe Japan this time France obviously hosting the tournament they're really going to win this but Germany's still in play England is more is more powerful than ever, really, in terms of women's soccer. And then you also have Australia, who have always been this dark horse team, especially in 2015. It was a very popular pick to be like, oh, yeah, they're going to come out of nowhere and really uh, mess some teams up. But this year, they're a legitimate candidate to win the World Cup. So we're actually starting to see the world game catch up to these sort of traditional powers of women's soccer. And I, I think it's definitely going to make for some really interesting group stage matches, but also a really fun tournament overall. Yeah, and uh, as we lead into that, obviously uh, everyone here is mostly focused on uh, U.S. soccer, as, as you will be. Uh, what, uh, you know, Jill Ellis uh, had some interesting roster de- decisions, I would say, um, coming into the World Cup, bringing back a couple of players who hadn't uh, been with the team. Uh, so what did you make of, uh, of her roster decisions uh, in the context of, of of the team's performance uh, coming into the World Cup. Right. I mean, the two big surprises in terms of the roster win for players who weren't necessarily in with the team, defender Ali Krieger and midfielder Morgan Bryan, both were with the team for the 2015 uh, Women's World Cup win. Their experience is definitely a thing that Jill Ellis looked to and said, like, yes, that matters more to me. Uh, and I wrote about this for The Athletic than, than necessarily NWSL form in terms of pure, like, getting those games in for the league, for the national team. So, you know, we, we saw players like Casey Short, who is a, a left back for the Chicago Red Stars, left off. And I, I think the biggest question mark of me for the roster decision was actually leaving uh, midfielder McCall Zerboni uh, here in the U.S. Um, you know, she's basically a direct backup for Julie Ertz in that defensive midfielder role. But she really, I think – would have been a nice insurance policy for this team to have if anything, you know, knock on every single piece of wood for the U.S. national team uh, should happen to Julie Ertz. But overall, I mean, so Jill Ellis has a couple of keywords when it comes to this roster. She definitely likes experience, but the big one is versatility. And she looks for players that she can fit into multiple roles. You know, Crystal Dunn is playing as a left back in this tournament. Yeah. Arguably, she is the best attacking midfielder this team actually has. <laughs> she might see time in that role in a World Cup. We don't actually know. She has played it a little bit uh, through some of these final friendlies before the team left. But, you know, you look at players, Tobin Heath, who is <laughs> starting mm-hmm. forward, could actually play uh, time as a defender in this tournament. So she's looking for talent that she can put into multiple places on a team. I think she's taken a lot away from both 2015, where players like Lauren Holiday and Megan Rapinoe had to miss games, and then players like Morgan Bryan had to step up, 
in meaningful ways, but also she's definitely been haunted by the 2016 uh, quarterfinal loss to Sweden in the Olympics. Yeah. So I, I think that that has really informed the way that this roster has not only been shaped in the final selection, but how she's looked at players throughout the entire cycle to build the 2019 roster. Yeah, and so one player I want to uh, focus on a little bit is is Carly Lloyd. Obviously, uh, had a, a monster uh, 2015 World Cup, uh, and it sounds like this time around she's mostly going to be a bench option, which I'm not sure she's all that thrilled with. But I think she seems to have at least accepted it for the time being, much as Abby Wambach eventually did in the uh, 2015 yeah. World Cup. So, uh, yeah. how do you see that dynamic working I out? I think that they're slightly different because I think Abby Wambach had, you know, she was always like a, a captain role on this team, and Carly Lloyd is also a captain on this team, but I think that their approaches to the game, Abby Wambach, I don't know if we're ever going to get a player on this team that is quite at Abby's level of, like, being willing to get into someone's face to, like, scream and hype them up. We don't really have that player on the U.S. national team anymore. Carly Lloyd is very much a lead-by-example type of player, but... Yeah, I've watched Carly Lloyd answer the question of, like, oh, you're on the bench, are you happy with that? And, you know, she's answered it. I, I think I've seen her answer that question probably at least five or six times. <laughs> and that answer is always no. Like, are you crazy? Like, of course I'm not satisfied to, to be on the bench. And she's scored some big goals in friendlies, and I think that she has reminded everyone that she is still a threat. I do think that her strongest uh, part on this team is to just come off the bench in the last 15 minutes and completely destroy people. I mean, she can still be a hero for this team. I don't think it's going to be quite in the same way as the 2015 tournament, but if she comes on in the last 15, 10 minutes of the game and just goes absolutely ham on, on another team, like, that's a role for this team that they're very much going to need, especially if they're struggling to break down some teams that might feature that low block that beat them in 2016. Yeah, and so, I, I mean, I don't think anybody expects the U.S. to have any problems uh, getting out of the group stage. Uh, they do have their uh, nemesis, Sweden, in their group. Uh, but uh, you know, do you think there's a chance that uh, Sweden is able to uh, beat them and potentially send them into a second-place uh, uh, ranking in the knockout rounds? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a potential. Um, that's the fun about World Cups, especially, is that really the group stage is feel like one of those places where anything can happen and the games are a little bit more wide open than when you actually get into the knockout games and and teams might be a little more defensively minded I do think that the fact that USA Sweden is last is obviously going to decide how the finish happens in group F but you know I do see USA coming through in that game I think that Jill Ellis has spent a lot of time and you know it might actually come down to a mind game of does Sweden play that same system that worked for them in 2016? Do they try something completely different because they think Joe Ellis is going to play to that system that worked in 2016? Like, I'm very curious to see how that plays out on the field, but ultimately I do think that, you know, this U.S. national team has depth in a way that very few other teams in this tournament have, and um, I think that it's a team that's going to very much want to win this group even though it might set them up potentially for a quarterfinal match against France. They're going to want to prove it by being first in group, by winning their way through those those knockout rounds handily. Like, this is a team with something to prove, I think, in a way that, you know, 2015, they struggle a little bit in that group stage, and I, I think they want to show that 
this is actually the best U.S. national team that has ever existed. Yeah, and one of the things I recall that was interesting about the the 2015 is, as as you said, they they really you know well struggle is a relative term, but uh, yeah, they had some issues them. getting out of the uh, or not getting out of the group, but at least with their performance, and they were actually I would say fairly uh, fairly criticized uh, initially early on, but you know as the tournament went on. They seem to get stronger and stronger with each performance, uh, which led into the you know the final against Japan, where they had one of the best first halves uh, you'll ever see. Uh, so, uh, as you said, it sounds like they want to kind of you know uh, nip that narrative in the bud about maybe starting slow um, and not playing particularly well. And so, I think I think you're right. That's they're definitely motivated to to kind of see. Uh, to, to kind of, you know, change that narrative and really start off, uh, start off strong. Yeah. And I mean, they really resisted, you know, I was at media day here in New York City before the team traveled to England for their final prep, but, you know, they got a lot of questions about like, oh, you're defending champs. And they kept brushing that aside. Like, that means nothing. Like, it's been four years in the women's game. Things have changed. Like, it's not where you're a defending Super Bowl champ or, you know, NBA finals champion. The game has changed so much that it really means nothing that we won the last one. We're not defending champions. We're there, we're just there to go win a World Cup. It's not because we want to go back-to-back necessarily. So that's another narrative thing that they're also just kind of saying, like, don't put that on us. Like, this is not a traditional sports narrative. Um, we don't want to get into that. We're just here to win and to win well and to win a World Cup. Yeah, so uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the other uh, teams. Um, who who do you see as the most likely to knock off the U.S. if if it is to happen? Yeah, I think it's absolutely going to come down to France. So, again, the way that this bracket is set up, it could potentially be a USA-France matchup in Paris during the quarterfinals. Which is unfortunate. Game, I've been talking about this for a couple months now. Like, I don't know how that game goes, but France has a lot of advantages just being on home soil, being in Paris, you know, they want to prove that they can win a World Cup on home soil. So I think that's going to be sort of, if that matchup happens, the most crucial game, I think, in terms of the U.S.'s campaign to actually win a World Cup. I think once you actually get past that quarterfinal and into the semifinals, I think the challenge will actually drop a little bit, depending on who it is. Um, Germany, I think, is my pick to make it out of the other side of the bracket and USA Germany I think is a really great potential matchup I mean France Germany as well either way that that could go um but yeah I I think that France is really the team that has the most potential to get it done against the U.S. national team and and that's the game where I still you know I I go back and forth pretty much on a daily basis (laughs) in terms of who I think will win that game, but I think who wins that game could ultimately be the team that is on that final podium at the end of the tournament on July 7th. Yeah, and I want to circle around to uh, what the consequences of a potential loss uh, for the women's national team in a bit, but I want to also ask uh, about some of the dark horses you see, someone who maybe 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 they don't win uh, the World Cup, but maybe they, they're surprised to get out of the group stage and maybe knock off one of the favorites. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are looking at Spain right at the moment in that role. Uh, Spain is in the same group as Germany. I know that there's even some some hot takes that they could uh, <laughs> steal the group out from under Germany. I think that it's maybe like a cycle too early to really see the full potential of Spain's program coming together. But 
I do think that they're going to surprise people in this tournament, for sure. Um, USA could actually see them in the round of 16. And that's some matchup that could prove tough for the U.S. national team. Um, I don't know if necessarily they'd get that result over the USA. I think a, an upset in the round of 16 between Spain and, and U.S. national team would really throw this program into a tailspin. But um, Spain is definitely a pick. You know, Australia has been that sort of popular dark horse pick. I think they've now actually moved into the favorites section. Um, but the other one, I think the Netherlands are really somehow still a little underrated in terms of what they could do in this tournament. They won Euros in 2017. They have two completely all-star strikers on that team. Um, they're in the, a group of Canada, and I actually think even though they're technically lower ranked than Canada, I'm picking Netherlands to pick that, mm. uh, to win that group and actually make a pretty substantial run through this tournament. All right, so let's talk a little bit about... Uh what what we see happening going forward. So uh, what would you say uh, is uh, the U.S. women's national team will win the uh, tournament if blank happens? Yeah. I mean, I think they have to beat France in that quarterfinal. I think that the key thing for them, too, is, you know, we, we've got all these questions about goalkeeping, about their defense, but the key for me and what I've, I've been consistently writing about is their midfield. And I think if their midfield is successful, and, you know, Jill Ellis has a choice still, technically, in front of her. Um, Julie Ertz as defensive midfielder. Lindsay Horan, I think, is a lock to start as long as she's healthy. But then it's the question between Roosevelt as a pure number 10 or Sam Mewis as probably the team's best, like, box-to-box midfielder. But I think if that midfield performs at the level that they are capable of performing, they move past France. So I, I think that that's really, you know, if they can hold possession in a way that keeps feeding the forward line and we never really see major questions asked of the defense, which, you know, I don't think is necessarily, like, as weak as some other teams. I think Australia has a much bigger question about their back line. But um, I, I think if they're able to control the game from the midfield, then, yes, that's that's the key to the U.S. national team in this tournament. All right, and then on the other side, the U.S. Uh, women's national team loses if blank happens. I think if we see some, like, complete defensive breakdowns. So, um, you know, we've got a couple players on that back line. Kelly O'Hara has some health issues. We're not quite sure yet if she's going to be able to go full 90. I think that's going to be question number one as media arrives in France. But Crystal Dunn playing as left back. I mean, if I'm France and I'm looking at that USA back line, I'm looking at Crystal Dunn, who is arguably one of our best attacking players, as left back and saying, okay, we're just going to run at her this entire match. So I I do think that we're going to finally get some real questions asked about this back line. Obviously, the last few friendlies were never really going to be a good indication of where goalkeeping and the the back line were. Um, USA played Australia in a friendly, and it was a... 5-3 5-3 results. So we saw some defensive breakdowns for both teams, but I do think that they're going to have to tighten that up in order to make sure that they actually progress to that final. Yeah, I mean, the one thing about the send-off games is, you know, obviously it's there's a lot of tinkering that typically goes on, and uh, it's it's tough to gauge how those 
those those games go. So I, I tend to mostly discount them right. um, unless yeah. unless something disastrous happens and there's an injury or something like that. But so it's just you know I just you know I think Ellis deserves a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, obviously given her performance in the 2015 World Cup. Right. Obviously that was a bit da- damaged by the 2016 uh, Olympic failure, uh, which we'll talk a little bit about uh, one of the principles in that in a bit. So, but, but I think the bottom line is, is U.S. is still the favorite. They've got the game against France that is going to, I think, be determinative, as you said. Um, and so just, just quickly on, on that point, what, what do you think is, is the fallout if they were to fall to France in that quarterfinal, which again is unfortunately timed, assuming, yes. you know, both, both yeah. sides go through as expected? You know, I don't, I don't think that it's, I think the loss against Sweden in 2016 was like a giant, the panic button got hit, right? Which, fair to some extent, because I don't think that the U.S. had ever really figured out how to beat that low block, and so now they've spent time on it. I think if the U.S. loses to France in a quarterfinal in Paris, you can't necessarily say the entire program is in question because of this one result. There's a lot of factors there, mostly that you're playing the home team in a World Cup in Paris in the quarterfinal. So I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the thing that finally gets some questions raised about U.S. national team. Part of it is just the rest of the world has started to really catch up. I think the bigger question that it then might point to is, okay, so we've had a fa- you know a relative failure in 2016, a relative failure in 2019, and then looking at the youth pipeline coming up, and the results of the youth national teams in the U.S., like, that's actually a bigger question mark to me than if the USA loses in Paris in a quarterfinal, is the long-term growth of the program and the results that the U.S. national teams have gotten on the women's side. More than, okay, we sent the senior team off to this World Cup in 2019, the rest of the world is caught up, they got Paris, or they got France in this sort of terrible bracket situation, and they lost, like... I think it's not necessarily going to be, like, indicative of the health of the U.S. national team and more just, you know, these things happen. Um, but I, I do think that it's not going to go over well for this program, which, you know, is to be expected and to some extent fair, just in terms of, you know, this is when the U.S. national team gets the most coverage. So if they lose early in this tournament, it's going to become a major story whether it's fair or not. Yeah, I think I think I think it's a little harsh uh, if if that were to be the case. Uh, what happens? Yeah. You know, again, the the women's national team hasn't won every World Cup since uh, 1991. Right. Right. Yeah. So uh, again, I, you yeah, know, I th- go ahead. Yeah, I think it's going to be. It's going to be tough. Like, it's just sometimes the bracket is not going to be your friend, and I think that this is a situation where the bracket might really not be our friend, but also. You know, this is the most competitive World Cup, and, you know, obviously there are off-the-field things between U.S. soccer and the players, and I'm sure we're going to get into that, but yeah. <laughs> in terms of meaningful investment into this program, like, we're starting to see other countries really put a lot of money into women's soccer, and Germany has always been there. France has definitely been one of the most consistent. England has really started to catch up in a, in a really meaningful way. Australia as well, like, USA is not going to be number one forever just because we have always been number one. And I think this is the last World Cup where it is like a real guarantee that we are the best team in the world. And by 2023, 
I think the top 10 in women's soccer is going to look very different. And, and I think that that's just a natural outcome of the growth of the game and it's not a bad thing at all. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that actually segues nicely into uh, what I wanted to ask you about next, which is uh, you talked a little bit about how this is going to be the biggest uh, World Cup, uh, women's World Cup uh, ever. And you talked about a few of the, the reasons why, uh, number one of which is, is increased investment from other countries. Um, do you see, uh, do you think that the uh, women's national team and the federation have uh, sufficiently, you know, contemplated what it could mean to see other countries substantially increasing that investment and do you think that they are making you know making moves to try to counteract that domestically yeah i mean so it's a big question i think the team is a little more aware of it but i think that's also because you know the u.s national team has always kind of been this beacon of like okay the number one team in the world arguably the most uh, investment into a national team. So other teams are looking to them as sort of this example of what's possible. The federation itself, I think, is definitely aware to some extent, but also there's a lot of bigger picture questions from the federation side of it. So I think the one thing that can be controlled and not necessarily by the Federation, but I guess, you know, sort of this women's soccer power in general is that investment into the NWSL is kept at a level to keep it as a meaningful league for development for U.S. national team players. And also, you know, like, Australia has benefited tremendously from NWSL. Yeah. Brazil to some extent as well. Um, but keeping a, a strong domestic league, I think, is such a key part for ensuring that you have continued success on an international stage. And I think this is also why we're starting to see England come up in a meaningful way, Australia come up in a meaningful way, even Italy and Spain. You know, like, I think this is the beginning of seeing Italy and Spain having, you know, a major impact at a tournament, and it's because of there has been meaningful investment into their domestic leagues, and they're keeping their players at home and having them play for club teams there. So... You know, I think that there's obviously bigger picture questions to ask of U.S. soccer, but one of the things that I think is so easy to invest in and requires, like, relatively less money is keeping the NWSL at a very healthy level. And, you know, I, I can talk about NWSL all day, every yeah. day, but <laughs> um, I think that that's where, you know, beyond just the youth national team programs having some big question marks around them is, like, making sure NWSL has that investment and has the capacity to not just now keep up, but like stay a step above some of these other domestic leagues because, you know, and the Bucell likes to talk a lot about like, it's the most competitive league in the world. And I think that is still the case. Like I, I think, you know, in France, we see a couple of top teams, Italy is starting to catch up on a competitiveness level. I think England also, you know, like they, they have like a top and bottom. There may be a little that's where you can actually put some money and have it make a difference. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the uh, NWSL um, because obviously the, the league has is has made it far farther than any other previous women's professional league yeah. in in the U.S. But there are a lot of issues. I, I've talked to the federation myself about you know their investment, um, 
they've obviously helped support the league, but there are a lot of a number of things that are, are still that out there that need to be done. Um, you know, uh, increasing you know, player salaries, uh, some of the you know some of the things in the background regarding um, you know infrastructure. Uh, what do you what do you see as the primary uh, what the what the uh, federation should be doing to increase uh, their investment um, money or not, and how do you see the potential fallout from the World Cup helping helping that if at all? Yeah, so I think for the the federation and their relationship to NWSL. You know, I think within the NWSL, they kind of actually want to distance themselves from the Federation a bit. So Federation right at the moment supports national team players by paying their salaries within the NWSL. So there's always been this tension of national team obligations to club obligations. And you're starting to see this this new level of player crop up, like, for example, Lindsey Horan, who values that club game just as much as country. Hmm. But I do think that there is an easy step for the Federation to take, which is simply allowing players to stay with their clubs when they should be with their clubs. So they, they continue to kind of cross-schedule U.S. national team obligations yeah. against NWSL obligations. And we saw it exactly with the lead-up to this World Cup, where they pulled players early to, to bring into camp. And other, you know, like New Zealand players were in basically until practically last week. So we're starting to see the tension come up a little bit more. But U.S. soccer is certainly capable of supporting the league from a financial standpoint while not necessarily sacrificing what they want out of players. Then from the actual, like, World Cup impacts onto the league, this is a thing. You know, we've looked at this from the first professional league on. Oh, yeah. Where WSA was formed in, in the wake of the 1999 World Cup and lasted three seasons, fell apart. We had WPS where it fell apart right before 2011 World Cup, which is really, like, essentially the dawn of the modern age of women's soccer in America, I mean, the, the level of new fans that were engaged with this team in 2011, it was just like a whole new explosion yeah. of fandom, and then there was no pro league. Yeah. Then you have NWSL, and, you know, they've lived through a World Cup already. We had 2015. We had the summer of Crystal Dunn, where she was left off the, the World Cup roster, and then basically owned NWSL for the rest of the summer. But they never... You know, we, we keep talking about this World Cup bump. How do you turn the bump into, like, a, an actual wave that's going to sustain long-term change for this league? And I don't know if there's an answer for that yet in 2019. Yeah, and I don't know if there's an answer for that, really, um, in domestic soccer, as it were. Cause, yeah, true. Yeah, because, you know, MLS, you know, has depended on these so-called World Cup bumps uh, to, to help boost, you know, popularity or, or recognition. Obviously, they didn't even make it this last time, so uh, we'll, right. we'll, we'll, uh, we'll stay yeah, away from I, that I for the time being. badly, like, MLS was impacted by that fact. Because you do, you get increased viewership, the social, you know, it's just in terms of, like, actually reminding people that you exist. And it's, yeah. it's easier for MLS because they have so many more markets. NWSL has nine. And 
maybe 10 by next year. You know, there's the potential that L.A. is finally going to step into this league. There's a few other markets that are kind of in play. But you have nine cities that, to some extent, know that they have an NWSL team. So this is your one chance of, like, Allie Wagner was your primary broadcast person for Game of the Week for NWSL and is now going to be the lead uh, color analyst for Fox for this World Cup. Like, of course they're going to talk about NWSL. It's just a matter of can you take advantage of that in a meaningful way. Yeah, yeah, and then there are some uh, rumblings that there's uh, a linear TV deal coming for the NWSL yes. um, too, as well. So that'll that'll certainly help uh, help out, especially coming off the heels of, of the World Cup. So last thing I wanted to chat with you about uh, is some is some off the field uh, fun, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and it is related to the World Cup in, in that uh, the women's national team has obviously filed a lawsuit um, on equal pay grounds and. Uh, Similarly, uh, Hope Solo, their former uh, colleague, has has done the same. And there was an interesting statement from FIFPRO on women's prize money. I wanted to chat with you a little bit about that. I don't know. I think you saw that, I assume. Yes. Yeah. So uh, just generally, uh, obviously, there was a massive disparity in prize money. We'll start there uh, in the between the 2015 and 2015 Women's World Cup and the 2014 uh, Men's World Cup. Uh, what do you make of the statement and do you, do you expect any movement on this going forward? Obviously it's too late for, uh, this year, uh, but going forward, uh, there's certainly, that's certainly good news if they're going to start working on trying to get, uh, some more money into the purses. Yeah, I mean, they had already increased the prize money from 2015 to 2019, so there was a little bit of progress from FIFA there. The fun part is, looking at this, you, you have so many layers in terms of, who has control over women's soccer? You have the FIFA at the top, which they could snap their fingers in like an instant and just put in so much money. Yeah. They wouldn't miss it. They wouldn't even yeah. notice. And it would change the game on such a meaningful level. And prize money is one thing, but like the bigger issue is investment into some of these, these club, you know, the, the teams like Brazil, Argentina, Chile, where the men's game is so advanced, the women's game is just in a completely different state. Yeah, Jamaica's another one of those. Then you have the domestic levels. Like, there's so many levels of power that none are actually investing at 100% the way that they could be. Yeah, so, yeah, you're right. I mean, the prize money would be a simple thing to do, but it doesn't necessarily solve the, the underlying issues of investment. Uh, there was a story, I think, in ESPN about the Jamaican uh, women's national team. Uh, they're they're fighting to try to get you know some basic uh, you know some basic parity uh, with with the men, and there it seems like they're suffering for it. Um, you know, and that kind of leads into the uh, the women's national team uh, Hope Solo's uh, lawsuits. Uh, and I was just wanted to get your your kind of take generally on um, what uh, the women are are fighting for, and uh, you know if you've heard any sentiment from behind the scenes on on uh, what impact they think that has on the relationship with the federation generally. Yeah, I mean I haven't really seen anything in terms of the games that I've been to recently. I went to a couple of the send off games, media day, that sort of thing. Like there doesn't really seem to be any tension when all of these things are happening, right? Like they're they're there they're ready to promote the team um there's no there's nothing like that you can feel simmering under the surface beyond the fact that when media start asking questions about the lawsuit you can feel the mood change a little bit <laughs> yeah. in a room but 
I think they also get that the players should answer those questions because if they're not allowed to, then it it's a whole different can of worms. Yeah, right? it looks like the federation is putting their hand on yeah. Allow them to answer those questions. Yeah. When it comes to the lawsuit itself, I, I still think that at the end of the day, this is a, a public opinion campaign. The lawsuit is definitely it's not that it's not heading to the court or whatever, but their strength has always been just reaching out to the public and saying, you know, the men are on this team, they don't do well, we're on this team, we're doing the exact same thing, and we want to walk up. Like, the the argument is very simple to a wider audience, and that's where they're going to succeed, not necessarily a lawsuit where when you actually get into these finer details of how the two teams are arranged and, you know, the payment structure and all these sorts of things, it's not apples to apples by any stretch of the imagination. So it's, it's you know, they've definitely said, like, we're not going to touch it until after the World Cup. I think that they very much need a meaningful result in order to have a meaningful push after the World Cup on this lawsuit. If they fall in that quarterfinal, I think the lawsuit and their public opinion campaign takes a hit. Yeah. I, I 100% agree with that. Uh, a lot of, uh, what the lawsuit is based on, at least, you know, as far as facts are concerned, not necessarily the law, is that, as you said, the women have enjoyed, uh, success far, that far outstrips the men, uh, yet they're not paid, um, on par with the men for, for those results. And obviously you gotta back up, uh, put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, uh, if you're using that as kind of a basis, at least, as you say, in a public relations campaign. Um, right. and so, yeah, if they were to be bounced out in, against France or even worse, uh, earlier than that, then obviously that's gonna, that's gonna present a problem. Um, and, and so a uh, last question I'll ask you about, um, is, is obviously their, the former member of the women's national team, uh, Hope Solo, uh, who was also followed the lawsuit, uh, filed a lawsuit. And, uh, I don't know if you've talked to the women, uh, behind the scenes about, about Hope's, you know, kind of, I, I would, Characterizer is kind of persona non grata, but maybe, maybe she's not. Uh, just curious to, to hear your thoughts on Hope Solo's new role, um, as a, as an agitator of sorts, uh, yeah, uh fighting for agitator is really the perfect description for her. Um, I have not really heard her name come up ever. I think that the lawyers behind the U.S. national team players lawsuit are hoping that she gets lumped in. I know that they've, I think, essentially asked for that to happen. Yeah. Because so many of the merits are essentially the same. But I, I do think that probably the players are pretty content to let her stay out the side of the system and just kind of keep lobbing things at U.S. soccer because then it's this sort of multi-front for the U.S. Federation. Oh, that's interesting. That they have to not only deal with the players and make sure that they're keeping them happy while they go try to win a World Cup, but also then Hope Solo's out here saying, like, okay, not just equal pay, but the Ted Stevens Act and, like, all of these other things and just, you know, keeping them occupied. Yeah, that that's an interesting uh, point that they basically hope Soul is doing some of their work for them. Uh, I kind of right. characterized her as kind of the tip of the spear, uh, and uh, the women's national team kind of gets to, to, to focus on uh, what they need to do. Uh, but not only that, like, Hope Solo is not afraid of a fight, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She gets to be the most aggressive person out here and saying, like, screw you, U.S. soccer. I'm just going to fight you nonstop, whereas I think the U.S. national team has to be a little more delicate. Like, 
they're definitely not backing down, but they've got to be a little more political about it. Whereas Hope Solo, she's she's gone. She can say whatever she wants. Yeah, it, and uh, the you know the most glaring example of that was when she was running for president, um, and went to you know went to the elections and just basically uh, napalmed uh, every bridge that she could find. Uh, I don't think she'll be invited to any banquets anytime soon, but uh, that's just uh, yep. Uh, she's she's kind of free to do what she wants at this point, and you know that's that's her right. Yeah, no, and I, I don't think that there's necessarily a problem with it either, because you're always going to have these levels and I've heard about this from like more of a protest against the Federation sense, but you're going to have various like opinions on how to get all of this progress made. And I think if you have the sort of most radical option, it makes everything else seem, okay, we can do this. So I think in the long run, she's going to get progress made, even if it's not necessarily directly tied to what she's been doing. But because she's kind of the most extreme option out there, when you get to sort of like a midway point of progress, it looks much more doable. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think that is a great place to end it. I know you've got to finish packing, I assume, and uh, get ready to... to head out, so I want to thank uh, you for joining me. Uh, I want uh, plug uh, your Twitter and where people can find your work. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at it's Meg Linehan, L-I-N-E-H-A-N, and then obviously at the Athletic. And you can follow our coverage. There's a U.S. national team tag for the women. There's a World Cup topic at at the Athletic Soccer. And then, you know, I'm not just writing about the U.S. national team, so international soccer as well. There's going to be a little bit of everything, really. Awesome, awesome. Can't wait to read it. I want to thank uh, Meg Linehan for joining me, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. I want to thank Meg Linehan for joining me on this episode of the Soccer ESQ podcast. You can, again, find her on Twitter at It's Meg Linehan. Check out her great coverage from France on the Women's World Cup in the Athletic. And I encourage everyone to grab a subscription and support independent journalism. I'll be back soon with another episode of the Soccer ESQ podcast. I'll be talking with Professor Stephen Bank and journalist Baudur on the more legal implications of the off-field issues involving the women's national team and the federation. So be on the lookout for that soon. Thanks and enjoy the Women's World Cup.